Let's pray. Father, we need you more than anything else. This world promises everything and delivers nothing that our hearts really, really want. Lord, you have promised to give yourself. And we ask that you would be our bread of life and that you would feed us with this living bread, this word that is living and active. Would you speak to us, help us not to be stiff-necked and open our eyes and our ears that we would believe with fresh faith and there would be fresh joy, fresh love for you. Speak to the children, speak to the adults, speak to all of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're stepping out of Corinthians today, and we're, gonna, we're doing a, an Easter in August service, all right? Every Sunday is an Easter Sunday because he's risen. He's risen indeed. <clears throat> There's a true story. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's a true story about a man, a 73-year-old man in Kenya, <clears throat> who was working in his garden, and he was attacked by a leopard. He heard this thing give a snarl and a growl, and he had a machete in his hand, but the leopard jumped on him so quickly, and he was in so, such close quarters in the fight for his life as this thing grabbed his, his, him and was scratching him pretty good and was trying to, well, he let go of the machete, and he went after the tongue. And this 73-year-old man reached in and he pulled the tongue out of this leopard's mouth. And you can, I don't want to tell you to Google this because I'll lose you for the rest of the service. But later, you can look at this story on, online, okay? It's a true story. And he yanked the leopard's tongue out of its mouth and killed the leper and lived. Hand-to-hand -hand combat with a leopard and won. Sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? Well, Jesus did something even greater. He destroyed him who had the power of death. He fought hand-to-hand -hand combat with the devil himself. He fought death, and he did something better than ripping its tongue out. He took out the sting of death forever. Jesus said in John 16, 33, These things I said to you, that in me you may have peace, Shalom. In the world you will have tribulation, trouble, hardship. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus says he's overcome the world. In the beginning of John, John's gospel, he says that the light has come into the world and the darkness hasn't what? It hadn't won yet. It never will. It hasn't overcome it. It has never won. And now he's saying he's overcome the world. And now we're to the story where it actually happens. If you didn't have the last chapter of the Gospels, I was reading the, the Gospels recently, I was thinking, what would happen if you just stopped and, and all of a sudden you, you, only, you only have Matthew 1 to 27, but you got no 28. And you got Mark, you got the first 15 chapters, but you got no Mark 16, gone. You got Luke, you got 23 chapters, but you got no Luke 24. And you got John 1 to 19, but you don't have the last two chapters. What do you got? You got nothing. 
You got tears. All of the Gospels end with that last chapter with Jesus being buried and in a tomb. They all end the same way if you didn't have that last chapter. And the last chapter is what you need because otherwise you would take a John 16, where he says, in this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. All you'd remember is the first part. And that's the part that always gets quoted. In this world you'll have trouble. In this world you'll have tribulation. I hear that all the time. I've quoted it. And we forget the last half. What's the last half? I have overcome the world. Take heart, have peace, because this is true. But if you didn't have that last part, you'd be stuck with all you got is trouble. And that's what Mary is stuck with in this chapter. Mary can't stop crying, Mary Magdalene. And so I want us to give attention to this, because if you think about it, children, I want you to think about this for a minute. If you're thinking, like in the Old Testament, you guys remember the story with, with the true stories of the tabernacle and the temple, but particularly the tabernacle. They would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And the high priest was the only one allowed in. And he'd have to go through that curtain, and he would go through the curtain, and he would sprinkle the blood and into the Holy of Holies to make atonement on the Day of Atonement. Now, the internet ruins a lot of good stories because R.C. Sproul used to talk about how there was a, a, a rope around his waist and, and bells on his feet, and then you look on the internet and the good story's ruined because apparently that's not true. Sorry, R.C., he was wrong on that one, so, and I've even used that. But, but the idea was, imagine this, if the cray priest goes in and he makes atonement and all of a sudden he does die in there. If he died in there, and you had to drag him out, would you have confidence that your sins were forgiven? Or would you conclude that he was in big trouble and I'm probably in big trouble too? You'd probably conclude the latter. If all Jesus did was die and you didn't have anything else, what would you conclude? Would you conclude that your sins are forgiven and you got hope? I think we'd conclude the latter, that I don't really know what it means. But we have the end of the story, as Ken Harvey, or Paul Harvey used to say. We have the rest of the story. And this is the rest of the story. So let me pick this up. I'm going to read the last two verses in John, and then through, um, or John 19, and then into 20. Because like I said, they all end with him in the tomb. So it says, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. That's how John 19 ends. They laid Jesus there. The rest of the story. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciples and they were going toward the tomb. Now children, we got a foot race going on here. Let's see who wins. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Who won? Clearly John. 
And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And now Mary's by herself. And Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God, and, to your, and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced the disciples, to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Well, I want to focus on Mary Magdalene this morning. What an amazing passage. I love this story. I've never preached this before, I don't think. Um, Where do we, I mean, you see here in Jesus such pity, such power, such mercy, such might, right? We see the fullness. I mean, he's so tender and yet he's so tenacious. He's conquered the grave and yet he's so, he knows all his people and he has personal conversations with them and he's so tender to Mary to come to her first. But Mary Magdalene is an amazing person. I mean, when you think of faith, hope, and love, which one of those three jumps out when you read this text? Faith, hope, or love? Love. She so loves Jesus. She's the last one at the cross. She's there through the whole thing. When he comes down from the cross, she's there. And when they go to the tomb, she's there. And she's hardly getting any sleep, and it's not even dawn yet. It's the middle of the morning, and where is she? She's at the tomb. She is a lover of Jesus because he had set her free. She lost the only person who put her life back together again. Luke chapter 8 just tells us about Mary Magdalene. And it says that soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming, bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the 12 were with him. And some women who'd been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So Jesus had a ministry to these ladies. 
But Mary Magdalene in particular had seven demons. And whether the seven is this, the idea of complete evil or whether it was literally seven, we know that she had issues. And so Luke's just telling us about her. Mary Magdalene, the reason they say Mary Magdalene, it's like Ruth the Moabite. They're always attaching the, the second part for you. Mary Magdalene was not her last name. You see, Mary Magdalene meant, means she's from Magdala. And Magdala, Magdala had a reputation for not being a great town. It was a, it was a fishing village on the west side of Galilee, but it would be like saying, I'm from Vegas. I'm from Las Vegas, and I don't really want to tell you what I did for work. You don't really want to know. Well, Mary was from Magdala, and you don't, we don't know her past because we don't want to know. But we know she had seven demons driven out of her. Her past was horrific, but Jesus saw through that and loved her. Jesus loves sinners. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Mary Magdalene was like Humpty Dumpty, who sat on the wall. You remember, kids? Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But Jesus put Mary back together again. Seven demons, gone. And now shalom, peace has been restored, and she loved Jesus for it, and she's as loyal to Jesus as the day is long. And when she comes to this tomb and she sees that the stone has been rolled back. See, apparently the stone would be one of these things that would be on an angle. It would be easy to push it in, but really hard to push it back out because it's on an angle. And so we're told Joseph was able to push the stone and put it in, but you ain't getting that thing out again. And she gets there and the stone has been rolled back. And, she's, and, and we're told at the beginning of the chapter that it says we... Um, where does it say that? We, in verse 2, we do not know where they have laid him. You see, you try to, if you're trying to reconcile all the accounts, I think Mary was with some other women, and they went scattering in different directions to, to go get different disciples. And so she sees what's going on, and, she see, and obviously she looked in and saw that he wasn't there because her news to the disciples after she ran back to Peter and to John... And she gets to them and she tells them they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. I'd love to know what the they is. She obviously is convinced there are grave robbers and they have taken him and we don't know where they have laid him. And so Peter and John, they, they take off for this race and they race there to the scene. And now Mary obviously must have run back again. I'm sure she didn't walk back, so she's already made now. This is her second trip back after running. And she gets there, and we're told about Peter and John looking in and, and how Peter being Mr. Impulsive, you know, John stops. He doesn't want to go in, but Peter just goes right on in. And when they get in there, what do they see? They see the face cloth and the linen cloth, and, and it says they're not... That Jesus, where, where Jesus' head was and not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. 
doesn't make any sense because grave robbers don't fold up clothes and leave them sitting nicely. This is like Jesus got out of bed in the morning and made his bed before he was just gonna leave the tomb for good so that they would know everything's good and tidy here, got it all taken care of. You see, when they looked in, they're like, this is not the work of grave robbers. When somebody breaks into your house, they don't clean it nicely for you. They go through and make a ruckus. And so Mary, she can't find Jesus. She, she just wants to say goodbye. She just wants to pay her last regards. And now the, the indignity of indignities is they've taken him away. I can't even have this last moment. Think about how much grief she has been through. She was there at the cross. Jesus, between two thieves, on a cross, arms and feet nailed to wood. And all the flies and the bugs, they can do anything they want because Jesus is utterly defenseless. And anybody else can do whatever they want. And they're shouting things at Jesus. Crowds are mocking him, telling him to come down, save yourself. You saved others, come save yourself. She heard Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? She heard him cry out, it's finished. She heard the death rattle, the gargling for air, suffocating. Is Jesus, her Messiah. She saw the Roman guards make sure he was dead by jamming a spear up into his lungs and out gushed water and blood. He was dead, dead. She was there when he was taken down from the cross. 75 pounds of spices are put on him. And now he's missing. And she's going to find him. That's her mission. And she even says to Jesus, you just tell me where you laid him, and I will go and get him. Basically, I'll take it from here. Tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Even though he's well over 200 pounds in weight now with 75 pounds of spices and 100 and whatever he weighed, just tell me where he is and I'll take him away. As my dad would say, she's coming out with the puck. You know, she's one of these people that when there's a, there's a, there's a, a group of hockey players in the corner, she's coming out with the puck. She's on a mission, she's gonna get it done. And Mary was like that because her love was that tenacious. She was going to get it done. And yet in all this, we know that, that her vision was skewered, wasn't it? You see, she had love, which, but her, what, would needed, what needed to happen was her hope needed to be restored because she comes and she's expecting to see a tomb and a dead body. She didn't come expecting to see a risen Lord. She expected to see a dead Lord. You see? And so she comes and she's very upset because she just wants to say goodbye. And so two angels in white engage Mary in conversation. Now, did you find that humorous? I mean, she talks to angels. This was long before the black crows were singing about that, okay? She's talking to angels, and they're saying, woman, why are you weeping? And she responds to these angels in white. 
They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. And there she is talking to them. She's convinced there's grave robbers. And some of the early church fathers think that in this interesting turn of events here, that it says, um, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. And having said this, verse 14, she turned around. Some of the early church fathers think the reason that she turned around is because the angels were motioning. <laughs> you know, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. And the angels are saying, he's right there. Take a look behind you. And then all of a sudden she turns around and she's looking right at Jesus, but she supposes that he's the gardener. Because he is the gardener, the one who walked in the cool of the garden and has taken her back to the Garden of Eden, right there. But she doesn't get it yet, that this is the gardener, the real gardener. And so she asks him again. And Jesus says the same thing, woman, why are you weeping? And she starts off her thing again. They've carried him away. Tell me where you've laid him. She is on a mission. Just tell me. And she's off. And finally, Jesus, out of just great love and compassion, he just breaks through the whole thing. And with one word, all of her life is just going to be restored. One, one word, Mary, my sheep know my voice, Jesus says. I know them. He calls them out by name. And he just says, Mary, Mary. And instantly, she goes from weeping to worship. She grabs a hold of him and she clasps him and she's worshiping him. Her life, everything begins to make sense. She has Jesus again. Best thing that could ever happen. Jesus dashes all her despair in one word. You know, I think like sometimes when I come home at night or sometimes if I come home and, and my dog doesn't recognize me and I kind of come in in a hurry and what, is, what does Molly do? She, she barks like, like, you know, like a T-Rex or something. You know, she makes this, these big sounds. But I know the dog, that she's really a wuss. She's a big scaredy cat. But she talks a big game, hair stands up and everything. But she, she is a big scaredy cat. So she's really scared to death. But she'll bark like mad thinking, who is this? But all I have to do to shut her up is say one word, Molly. And as soon as I say Molly, she instantly stops barking, hair goes down, she comes over and she's just all affectionate. One word. Because she knows, she knows the voice. Jesus knows his people and his people know him. And the one word changed everything. Her, her ex, everything about her is just, her world is completely turned around. She's no longer looking at a grave. She's no longer wanting to say goodbye. She's no longer at the end of hope. She's at the beginning of hope. No longer is her world coming apart. It's never been more put together. She now leaps as she embraces Jesus as her heart is swelling out of her chest because she has found the Lord of glory and she's grasping him. And Jesus says, like, Stop, like this is too much. I, I haven't ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. 
This is a difficult passage because people think, well, is Jesus being rude to her? What's going on here? I think the idea is this. Jesus' mission isn't complete just yet, and either is hers. Mary Magdalene is being commissioned by Jesus. Some have referred to her as the apostle to the apostles. She's the sent one to the sent ones. She's given the commission to go to the apostles and tell them, I've seen the Lord. She's given, she's given a, a mission, pretty lofty mission, isn't it? To go and proclaim the resurrection to the apostles. Don't just stay clinging to me. You've got work to do. Now, Jesus has moved, theologically speaking, for the, for the theologians here, we talk about the state of humiliation, the state of exaltation in the shorter catechism. And, you know, you tell me about his humiliation. It's all about, you know, in the Apostles' Creed, we just, or the Nicene Creed we read, and how he suffered under Pontius Pilate, how he was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and from there he shall come again. His he has just moved from humiliation to exaltation, but his exaltation is, is not complete yet. He's going to ascend to heaven. He's going to sit down at the right hand of God the Father, and the Holy Spirit's going to come down to earth, and he's going to pour out his Holy Spirit who's going to indwell the hearts of those who believe, and God the Holy Spirit will live in their hearts and will change, change us from the inside out as they believe this glorious message of good news that our sins have been atoned for, they've been paid for, that Jesus was on a mission and his mission was to die for our sins and to be raised for our justification or being raised for our being made right with God. And his resurrection is proof that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted, the Father was pleased, and Jesus will be rewarded for living the perfect life, and he will ascend to the Father and be seated at the right hand. And also, it's a good reminder that Jesus' resurrection is not like Lazarus' resurrection. What's the difference? Well, did Lazarus die again? Yes. You see, when Lazarus was raised, he was raised the same body he had before. Jesus is raised, but now he's raised in his resurrected body, a glorified body. A body that is quite mysterious when we read the scriptures. We don't really have a category how you can eat and drink and yet go through walls. Human beings can't do that just yet, but we will. Because the Bible tells us that God is going to transfer our lowly body to be like his glorious body. It says that our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so I wonder this morning, I think every Sunday we're like Mary. We come weeping. We come to church and we got a cloud over us. We don't really understand we need a fresh perspective. We come and we think, man, my, there's just so many things that aren't right. And yet we get, we get clouded. And when you get the big rock in, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. My sins have been forgiven. He has taken death and fought it like a leopard and conquered death, destroyed the devil and the stronghold of the devil. And he's opened up heaven and he's bringing me with him and I'm in Christ. I mean, is that not good news? It's the best news 
that there is. Yesterday I was over at the Zells and uh, their house. So they live over, they're, they're live in Honduras, but they're coming back and they're gonna be selling their place. And uh, their grass need to be mowed and the runners have left and they asked Karis if she would mow the grass. And so Kim and I went over to help do some weed whacking and uh, so I'm running this weed whacker over there at the Zells, you know, and you guys know that the one thing I don't like is bees, okay? Bees are kind of like my nemesis. And I was telling them a story on the way over there of being on Long Draft Road and actually having a bee, a wasp land on my finger and stung me. And I remember as a little kid, I couldn't shake this wasp. I hate stuff that chases me. And I couldn't get this wasp off my finger and he stung me. And I remember as a little kid, like, that was so unfair, you know? I just hate bees, you know? Another time I was riding a bike and a bee landed right here on my glasses. Biggest bee I've ever seen in my life because he was right there. And what do you think he did? He turned around and stung me right next to my eye as soon as that happened. And a neighbor came out and he saw it in my neighborhood and he said, well, you better get home because that eye is gonna swell shut. And sure enough, by the time I got home, man, I can't even see out of my eye. I don't like bees, okay? So I'm out there, and their, their place has not been weed whacked in a long time, okay? Like, long time. It's like a forest weed whack. And I, and I told Karis, I said, I'm going to get lit up by bees by the time I finish this, you know? So I'm like paranoid, and I'm just weed whacking away. And I'm over in the back corner, and sure enough, bam, I get hit in the neck. And I instantly, like, jump back, and I had been biking earlier in the day, pretty hard and my calf just instantly locked up. So my calf instantly locked, I throw myself on the ground, wee whacker rolls over and I'm you know, thrashing on the ground. Every time I move, my, my calf keeps locking up. And I realize as I'm sitting there that I realize that wasn't a bee. It was just debris from the weed whacker and a piece just <laughs> hit me in the neck. And so I'm laying on the ground and I'm like, you know, my calf is locked up and all I'm wanting to know is, can, he, can Karis or Kim see me? And they haven't seen me yet, so I just need to get back doing what I was doing. Now, here's the point of my humorous story. I interpreted my pain incorrectly, and I wonder if we do the same. The Bible, how does the Bible describe our pain? Light and momentary. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us what? A way to glory that far outweighs anything in this life, far outweighs anything that can be compared with the glory that's gonna be revealed to us and in us. But here I am interpreting my pain incorrectly, thrashing around on the ground, and I had to just get back up and get back on the saddle. And that's where some of us need to do as well this morning. Death has been swallowed up in victory, we're told. The Bible says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 that the sting of death is sin. But, O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is, your, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, let me ask you this. 
If Mary loved Jesus this much before she knew who he really was, that he was the Lord of glory, that he was raised from the dead, how much more do you think she loved him after that? Do you think she continued to labor for her Lord? And I wonder with us, we get easily inconvenienced. And I just want to challenge us as a church that how can we best use our gifts and talents in showing our love for the Lord? Mary was a lover. Do, do you love him? How is it manifest in your, in your love for the church and your love for your neighbors, love for where God has put you to be used by him? We need to be like following Mary. And once she got Jesus, she continued to be a lover, but now she's completely restored in seeing his glory. We have that glory. So let's continue to live for him. Use our gifts and talents. Do you love him? Let's pray.